0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Then we'll close the week with his message at the Washington, D.C. Leadership Conference 1988. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, here is Chuck Colson on Today in the Word radio.
1: I came here today to talk a little bit about the church and so I sought for maybe one word that I might find out of church history that would be fitting for the church today. I read Aquinas and I read Augustine, I read Wesley, I read Moody. I looked for all of the greats to find one thing I might tell you as a word to the church. And I found it in none of those great writings. I found it in the story instead of a truck driver. 33 years old, who five years ago, his name was Larry Walters, was sitting in the backyard of his little home just outside of Los Angeles in a suburban row of tract homes, and he had a little backyard with a chain-link fence. And every Saturday afternoon, Larry Walters' practice was to go out and to sit in that backyard on his lawn chair. The newspapers that told the story said that he often took a six-pack with him, I assume, of (laughs) Pepsi-Cola, and he would sit there and spend Saturday afternoons. Well, after a period of time, he thought he got a creative idea, I suspect probably after two six-packs of Pepsi-Cola, and he decided that what he would like to do is get some balloons and tie them to his lawn chair and float up over his neighbor's yards, and all the yards looked alike, and the other neighbors are sitting out in their lawn chairs, and he'd wave at them from about 100 feet in the air. Larry Walters was a truck driver, not a physicist or an engineer, and so he went out and bought... 45 weather balloons. Filled them with helium, got some friends over to his house, tied them onto his lawn chair, went inside, got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and another six pack, got into his chair. His plan was with these 45 weather balloons that he would take a BB gun. And in case he started to go too high, he could just shoot out the balloons. <laughs> so he sat there with a the BB gun and got his friends there and they held him down. And all of a sudden he said, go. And he didn't go to a hundred feet. He went instead to 11,000 feet. Straight up. He he couldn't shoot out any balloons because he was holding too hard to the chair. It so happened that his housing project was right near Los Angeles International Airport. He was spotted in one of the landing patterns by a Continental Airlines DC-10 pilot who radioed in and said that he had just Past a lawn chair, he was told. <laughs> he was told to report immediately to the tower when he landed. Actually, for four hours, traffic was diverted, landing at Los Angeles Airport. Maybe some of you remember reading this. But finally, with helicopters and all sorts of effort, they finally got him down to the ground. And the scene on television was memorable because here came this fellow who had been gripping onto this lawn chair for four hours at 11,000 feet, and he looked a bit shaken, and his eyes were sort of bugged and. There was a, sirens going and lights in the background, and it was dusk. And a camera crew went running up to him, and somebody took a microphone and shoved it right in his face and asked him three questions. Were you scared? <laughs> he replied, yep. Second question, will you do it again? Nope. Why did you do it in the first place? And Larry Walters looked right into the camera and said, well, you can't just sit there." That's a word for the church today as the country is caving in around us. you can't just sit there. Before I talk about the church in an ever-darkening culture, let me uh, digress for just a moment with a personal note. Uh, we're celebrating Joe Stowell's birthday today. I celebrate this year a particularly significant anniversary. 20 years ago, this summer, in a friend 's driveway in the darkest days of Watergate in the flood of tears, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, friends, looking back though the press scoffed and all the incredulous headlines and cartoonists had a field day, I can look back these 20 years and say, "I am more certain." of the reality of Jesus Christ than I am of my own reality. My faith is deeper today than it was at any time. And I look back over those 20 years, and there have been some tough days, prison, some serious surgery for cancer at one point, and the worst day of those last 20 years, I wouldn't trade for the best day of the 40 years that preceded it. I look back with such gratitude to God. I realize, I think maybe the older I get, I realize that if it weren't for the fact that I knew historically that Jesus Christ actually went on that cross and died for my sins, I could not possibly live with what is inside of me. And so my gratitude grows with each day that passes for that moment when Jesus Christ came into my life. A second reason that I have to be grateful is the wonderful friends and relationships that I've come to know and appreciate and enjoy in the Christian world, none more precious to me than my relationship with Moody. I remember coming here to Moody Bible Institute in 1976, I was a brand new Christian and was welcomed with open arms and open heart by the entire Moody family. I've come to love WMBI, does as good a job as any radio station, and I've been on them all over the country, (laughs) secular or Christian, they're wonderful. And the best thing about it is, in this age, when a lot of institutions have lost their core, they've lost the truth, they've lost their orthodox moorings, Moody Bible Institute, under the direction of Dr. Joseph Stoll and my friend George Sweeting, who preceded them, and all of these gentlemen you've met today, Moody Bible Institute has stood firm and stood strong, and I'm proud to be associated with them and proud to have this opportunity today. Thank you. Let the church be the church. When Luther called out, let the church be the church. That's the word for today. Let us be the people of God. It's urgent. Darkness envelops our culture and our times. I have a little picture on my desk drawer. I pull it out every now and then to remind me of what's happening. It's kind of symbolic. It's a picture of a whole lot of people standing behind barricades, and they're singing and they're praying, but they have a look of pathos on their face. Armed guards are holding them at bay behind the barricades. Budapest, Warsaw, Prague, Timashwara, no. Vienna, Virginia, Christmas, 1992. The town of Vienna, Virginia, only 20 miles from the capital of the United States, ruled that the choral group could not sing Christmas carols on public property. They could sing Frosty the Snowman, but not Silent Night. And so the choral group protested, went out beyond the public property, got behind the barricades, were kneeling and singing Christmas carols under gunpoint of guards. America, 1992. Happening all across our country, in the courts. I studied constitutional law, took my doctorate in constitutional law. The most abominable decision made by the Supreme Court ever was Lee v. Wiseman this past year in which the Supreme Court held by a 5 to 4 vote that Deborah Wiseman, a 15-year-old girl sitting in a school in Rhode Island, could not be forced to sit and listen respectfully to something she disagreed with, namely the prayer and a politically correct, to whom it may concern, prayer at that of a Jewish rabbi constitutional right not to be made to sit and listen respectfully to something you disagree with. Once upon a time, we would have thought that was a mark of civility. Now it's a constitutional invasion. Zion, Illinois, not too many miles from here, they're painting the cross out of the city seal by order of the Supreme Court of the United States. It's in the schools, rampant in the schools. Heather has two mommies as a textbook being given to first grade children in the city of New York. Hand out condoms, but you can't have prayer in the schools. And the hostility is getting more intense as every day passes. Look at our brethren who are standing firm in Colorado, and look at the hate that is being heaped upon them because they have said there should be no special preference for gay people. That's not gay bashing. But for standing for that, they have been smeared. Or take Westminster School in Atlanta. Westminster School has a statement of faith. It is a Christian academy. It is started by the Presbyterian Church. They have a statement of faith for all of their faculty. Harvard University recently announced that unless they eliminate the statement of faith that restricts faculty members to being Christian, that Harvard will no longer look with favor upon applicants from Westminster. That's extortion from one of our great liberal universities. And just this week, Monday, the Washington Post in, had a front-page article about pulpit politics. And in, buried in the article was a reference to Robertson, Forwell and many of the leaders of the Christian movement. And it said, I read you exactly what it said, their followers are largely poor, uneducated, and easy to command. See what the secular world is saying? Don't pay any attention to those bigoted Christians, they're just poor, uneducated folks. I don't know about the easy to command part, anybody who's tried to lead an evangelical congregation or a conservative congregation might have some questions about that. The Washington Post did a retraction when there was a great outburst and they said that they should have said relatively poor, uneducated, and easy to command. Now, we all laugh at that, but do you know, do you remember when Andy Rooney made a racial slur on television that was just a slight racial slur? He was suspended. You can't defame any group in America today except conservative, evangelical, born-again Christians. We're fair game. What you've got to understand, folks, what is so critical to understand is that we are living today, without a lot of people realizing it, in what has become a post-Christian culture. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that people aren't going to church. Sure, 44% of the people in America are still going to church. Not that there aren't a lot of Christians in America. Not that there isn't a revival going on in some parts of our country. I was just in New England where thousands came out to the Evangelical Association last Saturday. It was thrilling to see that in that vast Unitarian wasteland of New England, to see all those evangelicals. But what I mean by a post-Christian culture is what Francis Schaeffer warned us of a decade ago when he said that the basic assumptions of the culture, those shared values by which we live, are no longer Christian. I mean, in the 1960s, polls showed that two-thirds of the people believed that there were such things as moral absolutes. They wouldn't always agree on what they were, but they agreed that there were moral absolutes. Just last year, George Gallup asked, do you believe there are moral absolutes, an absolute right and wrong? Seventy percent of the American people said no. Do you believe there's any such thing as truth? George Barna asked. Sixty-seven percent said no. And before we get smug, in that same poll, he asked people who go to conservative Bible-believing churches if they believe there was any such thing as truth, and 52 percent said no. We've been sucked in by the culture. Those of us who say, I follow the one who says, I am the truth, we too have been taken in by the cultural values. Belief in the Bible. 1963, George Gallup found that 65 percent of the people believe the Bible true. 1992, he asked that same question. and the, the response was not 65 percent believe the Bible true. In 1992, after 30 years of evangelical resurgence, Thirty-two percent believe the Bible, true. When we go out and we preach and we say the Bible says two out of three Americans no longer believe us, it's become a post-Christian era. And oh, how rapidly. I remember 1976 when I went on the Today Show, Barbara Walters was a good friend of mine and we did a, an interview and my first book, Born Again, came out and, and she held the book up before the camera and she said, this is a wonderful book, Born Again. Charles Coulson's story of his conversion to Jesus Christ. That night the bookstores were sold out across the country and they couldn't print them fast enough. And two days later, a candidate for, for president, the obscure governor of Georgia, was campaigning up in the snows of New Hampshire and someone put the book up in front of him and said, Are you born again? And he said, Yes. And Jimmy Carter, when he won the primary in New Hampshire, it went all over the front pages. I mean, everything. Year of the Evangelical and Newsweek, New York Times, everything was born again. Antique automobiles, baseball teams, football teams, everybody was born again. Most fashionable thing in the world. This year, Gallup asked people, what group concerned the most in American life? Number one on the list, 50% of the American people said they feared fundamentalists. Only 38% feared secular humanists. And when given a list of who you wanted to live next door to you, At the bottom of the list, below lawyers and car dealers, (laughs) fundamentalists, we've gone in 16 short years from being the most fashionable group in America to being the most feared. We need to ask ourselves some very hard soul searches about why that is, because it continues day by day. I'm having lunch with George Gallup tomorrow to talk about some of this back in Washington. It continues day by day to get worse. There are several reasons, and I'll only mention them very quickly this afternoon. One is the 60s revolution. I, we, most folks thought that the 60s was nothing but a, bunch of, a time when a bunch of kids went out and let their hair grow long and free sex and drugs and uh, lived in their communes and protesting. wasn't that as all. They were believing a whole new value system, They were believing the existentialist writers from France, Sartre, Camus, and others, who said God is dead, life is meaningless, except for the heroic individualism of overcoming the nothingness of life. Well, when the 60s were over, we thought they all went home. They didn't. Shaved off their hair, got rid of their tie-dyes and their beads, and went to Wall Street and became yuppies. The values of American life radically changed in the 60s, and the 60s generation is now mainstream in America from the anchor persons on television to the president of the United States. It's a 60s mentality. Second, the people that control access to influencing our culture are hostile to what we believe, because we believe that such a thing is absolute truth. We believe that such a thing is absolute right and wrong, and they don't and we don't realize the power that people have to influence the way we think. Take the inaugural. I wasn't as interested in President Clinton's speech as I was in Maya Angelou's poem. Remember the poem? It'll be read by school kids 25 years from now. It was beautiful. A beautiful ode to pantheistic multiculturalism. That's what it was. A gay is a straight, is a preacher, is a sheikh, Nature is calling us. Incredible. Andrew Fletcher once said, let me write the songs of a nation and I don't care who writes its laws. We're being subtly influenced in popular culture. Third, the values of our society today are supremely related to individual choice. And if that's the case, if all values are determined by individual choice, tolerance has to be the ultimate value. Truth has to be second. And we're the people of truth. Of course we're going to be in conflict with our society. And finally, if we really are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we must take some of the blame ourselves. Because I think in the 80s, we missed a great opportunity. There was a window of opportunity in the 80s. And what we did was to believe that by going to change things politically, by taking over at the top, we could change this country. We made a fundamental mistake. The, real, the the real, ignoring the lessons of history that every great movement has always started from the bottom and worked up. It has never started from the top and worked down. As people's hearts are changed, then the political structures will be changed, something Dwight L. Moody well understood, which is why he preached to the people, to the masses. That's how you change things. We made a mistake in the 80s. It's a crisis. That word gets thrown around pretty freely sometimes and too freely, but it is a genuine crisis. The issue today is not who governs us. The issue is the same question the Israelites asked. How then shall we live? Because you see, as Will and Ariel Durant, the great historians who wrote the history of Western civilization, once wrote, after spending their whole lives studying the history of the West... They said there has never been a case in the history of Western civilization where a society has been able to survive without a strong moral code, and there has never been a time when that moral code has not been informed by religious truth. Who's going to bring it back? Who's going to restore it in our society, government, media, education? No. The people of God are the only ones who can bring truth and a moral stability back into the mainstream and heart of American culture. But there's only one way it can be done. There's only one way it can be done. Luther's great rallying cry in the Reformation. Let the church be the church. And let's get rid of some misconceptions. First of all, when you say to people about church, they instantly think about a building. The building where they go to worship. There's no place in the New Testament where people talk about going to church. They are the church. The word in Greek is ekklesia. That's the gathering, the called out. It's the people of God. It's not a building. And the second mistake is that the polls all show that more than 50% of the American people go to church because it's good for them or it makes them feel good. Therapy. Suckered right into the secular value system. The job of the church is not to make people happy, the job of the church is to make men and women holy. Success is not measured by growth. It's a wonderful thing when a church grows, providing it grows under the fear of God and it grows because God is blessing it, but don't measure it. Success By size. We do that in America. We think more buses and buildings and budgets and baptisms is a measure of success. It is not. Fearing God. Coram Deo, the reformers said, in the presence of God. And we don't go to a church for a fellowship. You know, surveys all say why people, when they are able to select a church, what they look for. And fellowship is number one on the list. And then maybe preaching, and then maybe music programs, and they'll go down the list. That isn't the reason at all. The reason you should pick a church is that that's a community where you can belong, where you can be equipped for works of service in the world, where you can go out and be ministers of the gospel and be the salt and the light and to make a difference in the world. You choose that church because it's the only way the Great Commission can be fulfilled. The only way. Jesus said, go, baptize them in my name, teach them all I have taught to you, make disciples. And that's got to be done in the church, and disciple-making is the business of the church and the first call that when you're choosing a church. And finally, you've got to get rid of this idea that we, can, that we evangelicals and conservative Christians through the 80s, I think, fostered, and I think many in the parachurch movement of which I'm a part need to repent of this, we fostered the notion that all you had to do to become a Christian was raise your hand, say some words, and now you're in the kingdom. It's not the way it works. I don't believe you can live the Christian life and experience the fullness of God's grace apart from the community of saints that you're a part of. I don't think you can read Ephesians and come to any other conclusion. No more spiritual lone rangers. Listen to what Jesus said. This a lot of commentators believe is the decisive moment of the New Testament. This is when Jesus finally asked his followers who he was. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He began asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is from Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Imagine the angels in heaven at that moment rejoicing. And Jesus answered to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barzona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then listen to what Jesus' immediate response is to Peter's confession. And I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. What a promise! I mean, we Christians went often, after this last election, I ran into all kinds of people who were wringing their hands in despair over the result of the election. Sure, a conservative Christian agenda got defeated in the election, but let's not kid ourselves. There's one place in Scripture where it says the gates of hell can't prevail, and that's against the church of Jesus Christ if His people begin to live faithfully. Let me tell you something, folks. The power is not in the ballot box, the power is in the cross of Christ. And long after Bill Clinton and George Bush are memories, the king will be on his throne. It's an abomination that we conservative Christians have had a low view of the church. You know, you want to ask a person about their Christian faith, the first thing you'll ask in evangelical circles and conservative circles over the last 20 years that I've been a Christian, the first thing I'm always asked is, first of all, my testimony. And that's wonderful. And in my case, that's a glorious experience, coming to Jesus Christ from the darkness into the light. And then you'll start asking them about their views on different issues, and and maybe their eschatology. And then you'll probably very quickly ask them their politics. And way down the line, almost an afterthought, their church. It ought to be the first act of discipleship that we take people and baptize them and bring them into a holy community and make them part of the people of God against which the gates of hell can't stand. If we do that, if we get a new view of the church as God's instrument for the redemption of mankind, as the signal and sign of the kingdom to come where people see not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul wrote. Then that's our witness to the world. No, we must get serious about the body of Christ. Serious about the church. Recognizing that God planned not for individual witnesses, but for the witness of His people. And we have to see the church in two ways. Ask people about the church and they'll instantly tell you the congregation where they go to worship. And we can sometimes get pretty parochial about that. I travel around the world. I'm in 44 different countries. I've seen believers all over the world in every confession, every background, every color, every denomination. You've got to look across the world and see all those who are genuinely regenerated by Jesus Christ, all those whom God has touched. All those who can claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who believe in the holy and errant scripture, they're our brothers and they are our sisters wherever they are, and we're part of that body. And then secondly, you've got to come to see your local church as the place where you really are trained and discipled and equipped for service in the world. When I was commissioned in the Marines, it was the Korean War. I was commissioned a lieutenant and 50% of the lieutenants were coming back in pine boxes. I knew that my life was going to be on the line. I knew that I would have under me 50 men whose lives would be in my hands as well. When I got to basic training in the Marines, I want to tell you I worked morning, noon, and night, over that obstacle course under the barbed wire, live artillery shells going, I learned the marine handbook from cover to cover, memorized it, I could be blindfolded and take my rifle apart and put it back together six months, 18 hours a day because lives depended on it. Should we take the church any less seriously? Not just a matter of life depends upon it, but the great cosmic combat for the souls of mankind depend upon it. And we should be treating our local churches exactly the way a Marine officer goes through boot camp and officer training, preparing for combat because that's what it is that is going on in the world. Third, there's nothing more important today than that we stand for truth and orthodoxy. It's awful easy to, to just compromise a little bit because we really want to get more people into the church. Awful easy just to take a little bit of edge off that message about sin and repentance. Awful easy to, to want to be liked by our peers. I was sitting at a dinner party the other night and this fellow was very liberal and he started saying, "Well." you don't really believe the Bible, do you, Mr. Colson? I mean, you're very well educated and you're well read. I said, of course I do, don't you? I mean, we cannot be defensive. We cannot back down. We have to take our stand on the historic confession of Christian faith that has been handed to us down through the centuries and for which the martyrs died. We've got to have a whole view of the world informed by biblical truth. It isn't just enough to say, well, I'm a Christian and.'" I love Jesus, and, and I, uh, I do my Bible studies. Not enough. You've got to see the whole world through God's eyes. Because in the word, world of instant communications, we are being assaulted on all sides, and it's impossible sometimes to separate the truth from a lie, and we've got to be able to see all of life, politics, art, science, literature, Business, all through God's eyes. Fifth, we need to remember something that a great historian in this century taught about the church, but we always seem to neglect. And he had a pithy little expression. Christopher Dawson, historian, said, being precedes doing. We Christians, every time there's a problem, we want to go out and organize some group to do something about it. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you are my people. He didn't say go witness. He said, you shall be my witnesses. I love, I have on my wall in the office the expression of Francis of Assisi when he said, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. (laughs) Totality of our lives. You shall be my witnesses. You shall be salt. You are salt. You are light. We don't have anything to give to the world if it doesn't flow out of our own holy character. We have to be before we can do. We have to be the people of God, holy, righteous, living in fear of God, before we can influence the world around us. One story that I will tell that illustrates this, and I tell it because it's very moving to me. but also because it's a wonderful metaphor for the church as a whole. How many of you here in this church today have taken part in Project Angel Tree, the Project to Prison Fellow? Oh, look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Bless you. Bill Watts down here. Our area director is sitting here, and Bill's done a super job organizing Angel Tree in this area. 260,000 kids across America last year were visited at Christmas time, mommy or daddy in prison. Thousands of Christian volunteers, hundreds of thousands, going out, taking gifts to them at Christmas, saying, this is from your daddy. My wife Patty and I did it, and it was the highlight of our Christmas. This is from your daddy who's in prison, and give them a gospel comic book and an illustrated Bible, and sit on the floor and tell them about the birth of Jesus. What an opportunity. 260,000. But one of those, and it's a metaphor for all of us, was in Waterloo, Oregon. In Waterloo, Oregon, a small Baptist church got the name of three kids, five, a boy five, another boy three, and a little girl two. Their daddy was in prison. They went to the home, they found a trailer, and there was the mother, and they discovered the mother was a prostitute on drugs, and these three beautiful little kids. And so they sat there and gave them the gifts, and then they told them about the real meaning of Christmas. And then they left, and they said, if you ever want to see us, come visit us sometime at our church. The next week, the pastor was preparing his sermon. There was a knock on the door. He went to the door and opened it, and here was the three little kids. The oldest one said, Mr., can we come see your church, and the pastor said, of course you can. And he picked up the little girl, and, and the two boys followed along, and he took them around and showed them the church. He said, anytime you want to come, you come here. Twenty minutes later, he was back working on his sermon. He heard a knock on the door. He went to the door. Mister. Same three kids, Mr., can you come to your church if your socks don't match? Pastor said, of course you can. He said, Mr., can you come to your church if you have no socks at all? And the pastor said, of course you can. Why do you ask? And the little five-year-old said, well, you see, my socks don't match, and my little brother here, he doesn't have any socks. Pastor said, you come to my church this morning. Those three kids came. They brought a little paper bag with them. In that paper bag was a single hot dog. They'd never been to a church. They didn't know how long it would last, so they wanted to have some food with them. Little brown bag with a hot dog in it, and they sat through that service, and needless to say, that church has reached out and embraced that family, is ministering to that family just as that man is being ministered to in prison, and those kids are coming in rejoicing in that church. Now, let me tell you, that's a metaphor. If we live as the salt and the light, if we are witnesses with our lives, if we go to our, Hurting a needy world, we won't have to worry about the church growth experts. The people will be batting the doors down on our church to get in because they want that kind of life. Let me give you three snapshots of the church. My heart so aches for the church to be the church. And as I've traveled around the world and as I've met thousands upon thousands of people in thousands of congregations, let me just pull three snapshots out that are in my book, The Body. One is Prague, 1989, Christmas. Thousands of people are flooding into the streets because the rumor is that the, that the Russians are leaving, the Soviets are leaving. 800,000 people fill the streets. They start chanting at the top of their lungs, Mali, 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 they were calling for a defrocked Catholic priest by the name of Vaclav Mali, who had been censured by the puppet communist government and forced to go into the Prague subway system and clean the toilets for ten years. Also conducted services. And Mali came up out, literally up out of the underground, and led that crowd into the center of old Prague, and they stood up on a platform, and they got him a sound system, and they led the crowd in the Lord's Prayer, and He said to the communists, if you want to be forgiven and repent, you come forward. And they did by the hundreds, and not a shot was fired. That was the peaceful velvet revolution about which the New York Times wrote in such glowing accounts of Mali standing up on that platform. Hero in Czechoslovakia. Vaclav Havel offered him any job he wanted in the government. Malise said, no, I just want to preach the gospel. People's hearts have to be changed. He loves Jesus. When I was in Prague last year, I was with my head of our ministry, who's a reformed pastor. I said, do you know Father Mali? He said, of course, everyone knows him national hero. I said, where is he? He said, we'll take you to his home. We went up a hill, and here was this little house with five apartments in it. We knocked on the door. This fellow came to the door. His face could have been chiseled out by Michelangelo, black curly hair, maybe 40 years old, rugged, handsome, loved Jesus. The minute we introduced to one another, he just embraced me, told me of his, how he was, meeting with all the different denominations for prayer, how people had to be born again, that that was the hope for his country, not the government. And as I was getting ready to leave, I had my arm around him and I said, I just want to tell you what a great hero you are to me. And he said, oh no, Chuck. He spoke perfect English and we got to know each other the way. He said, no, no, no. A hero is someone who does something he doesn't have to do. I simply did my duty. Let me take you then From there to Red Square in May 1990, six months later, the Soviet Empire is still intact. The tanks are rolling through the streets. I had been there just two weeks before in Red Square. This is May Day, the celebration. Mikhail Gorbachev, whom Time Magazine called the man of the decade, (laughs) was standing up on the platform surrounded by his apparatchik as the tanks and the troops are rolling by, marching in salute. Across Red Square is a huge banner of Lenin and... uh, Uh, Trotsky and the Communist Fathers up on this picture up on this banner right across the square. All of a sudden in the middle of the crowd someone starts to agitate and push and shove. Out of the crowd burst eight men. They run between the tanks. One of them, a bearded Orthodox priest, is carrying an eight-foot-high cross, and he lifts it up right under Mikhail Gorbachev, and he shouts out, Mikhail Sergeyevich, Christ has risen, and the crowd shouts, Christ has risen indeed. Gorbachev walked off the platform. That's the day communism died. I have a picture of it hanging in my office because that cross obscures the face of Lenin. Seventy years of atheism, and you couldn't destroy it, and all the power of the Soviet might—that cross was higher than that poster of Lenin. Now let me take you to Timisoara, Romania. Christmas, 1989. Reform pastor by the name of Laszlo Tokosh is preaching the gospel. Thousands are coming to hear him because he's preaching about Jesus and being born again much too much for Ceausescu to take, that dreadful tyrant. He ordered the secret police to come in and surround the house. They ordered him out of the house. He and his wife were barricaded inside. He got up one morning and he said it was one of the most extraordinary mornings of his life because his whole view of the church changed. He said, I'm a Hungarian, I'm a reformed. And he said, I looked out in the streets and here were the people surrounding my house, hundreds of them and then thousands of them, the ordinary church people, Hungarian, Romanian." Orthodox, Baptist, Presbyterian, every denomination, Catholic, all of them surrounding my house, the body of Christ, even tanks couldn't move. Into that crowd, a standoff which lasted for forty-eight hours, and many of you remember reading of it, into that crowd a young Baptist lad, Daniel Gavra, twenty-four years old, came running into the crowd. He came running up to his pastor, Peter Dukaluska, and he said, Pastor, I have something under his coat. And the pastor said, no, 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 Daniel, no violence, no arms. And we said, no, pastor, let me show you what I have. And he opened it up, and there was a box of candles. And he took the candles out, and they lighted one candle. And maybe some of you remember this scene. It was one of the glorious scenes of the fall of Eastern Europe and the fall of communism because thousands of people were carrying candles and reciting the Lord's Prayer in the square at Timashwara as the communists were held at bay with their tanks and guns. But the next morning, Ceausescu could take it no more. He ordered the tanks and the soldiers to shoot at the crowd. Daniel Gavra grabbed a woman next to him, a young girl, and they ran down the street and he felt a drop out of his arms as she was hit in the head by a bullet. She was dead before she hit the ground. The next thing Daniel Gavra felt was his right leg blown away. He fell to the ground and collapsed. He woke up in the hospital two days later without his right leg. His pastor, Peter Dugaluska came to see him in the hospital. And the pastor said to him, Daniel, it must be tough that you lost your leg. And this young Baptist lad looked up to him, smiling, and said, Oh, no, Pastor, no, no, it's all right. I lost my leg, but it was I who lighted the first candle. God, make us a people who have the courage to do our duty no matter what, the courage and the will. Make us a people who are willing to lift the cross of Christ high in the face of our enemies. Oh God, make us a people who are willing to give our limbs, yes, our lives for the cause of our risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.